Economic Incentives for the Energy Transition. Interview with Benjamin Gorlach, Episode 66. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. This week, we speak with Benjamin Gorlach, Head of Economics and Policy Assessment at the Ecologic Institute. If you like wide-ranging interviews about the policy challenges of navigating the current energy crisis in Europe, this episode is for you. Benjamin and I cover everything from the EU's emission trading system, the dominance of electricity for transport, and the 4i Traction project. If you ever worked on an EU Horizons project, you understand about the need to get, get the word out about it. And this is what we're doing. It's a great project. It stands for Innovation, Investment, Infrastructure, and Sector Integration. These are, of course, buzzwords, but we get into an in-depth discussion on the investments and infrastructure side of the project. Some of the key issues we address are the price of ETS, the Emission Trading Scheme here in the EU, and whether politicians should be playing with it to reduce overall energy costs. We also talk about how electrification of cars has actually won the day and why shifting away from fossil fuels is simply more profitable. Renewables have simply won. I think probably people argue about that, but let me just say this is my podcast and maybe we'll take it as a given here. Um, anyways, the takeaway, since Benjamin is an environmental economist, is there's no going back for both the institutional structures that incentivize investments into renewables and the technology we have today, which is getting us to a zero carbon energy system by 2050. And I just have a few notes uh, before you enjoy the episode. I've kind of been kind of thinking about how to reframe the, the podcast, how to get the word out about it. But I was just thinking why you need to listen to the My Energy 2050 podcast, not because we have world leading experts on the energy transition like Benjamin today, but because each episode is equivalent to consuming 10 journal articles, one book and 500 charts on how to implement the energy transition. You ever see any kind of charts out there about, yeah, we need to do this and that, you know, a lot of times, not all the time. But we'll just say some of those charts are definitely based on interviews with people. For me, being a qualitative, I would say, researcher, an economic political geographer, it's about understanding what people think about topics. And here, this is the purpose of this podcast, really, is to deliver you information and really insight into the energy transition that you can't get from other places and just can't a quick read or quick overview, but by actually going out and talking to people, all of us can really learn about the energy transition and how it's being implemented in real time on today, basically, right? Within, I do an interview and within the week or within a few weeks, each episode comes out. So this is really cutting edge stuff and key people we're talking about here. And I just want to say that there's, it's all guaranteed, actually, that how much information in, is in each episode fits into 10 journal articles, one book, and 500 charts. And you get it all in less than 60 minutes. So it's also great for when you are on the go, driving, or attending a boring conference, right? Just put a little earbud in your ear and go ahead and, and pay attention to the podcast rather than to the speaker. 
Okay, a final note. Uh, this interview was done for my current role as an Open Society University Network Senior Fellow at Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. The funding, I took a trip to Berlin. I did it by train, I just want to say. Uh, th- that the funding's been graciously provided to produce the podcast until the end of 2022. Now, the intent of my Energy 2050 podcast, kind of I just summarize that, but I always say this on each episode, is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. The content of each episode is great for teaching, research, and identifying how you, you know, how do you fit in, really? How do you fit into this energy transition? It's always a challenge for me when I wake up each day. That sounds kind of odd, but yeah, if you write about this, you do this work every day, you're always thinking about how do you fit in. Anyways, usually I don't fit in. This is why I do a podcast. Okay, now for this week's episode. I'm here today with Benjamin Gorlach, Senior Fellow, the Head of the Economics and Policy Assessment at the Ecologic Institute. Benjamin, welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. It's great to be here. Hi. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for setting aside the time. And we're in the Ecologic headquarters here. So this is where everything happens. And I was just wondering if you could tell me first, uh, introduce yourself, um, because how, from your biography, I see that you're quite interested in environmental economics and economics and ETS, for example, you have experience in. Um, how did you get into this field and why, why do you find it interesting? Yeah, sure. So happy to. Um, yes. So Benjamin Garlach, I'm I'm uh, an, an environmental economist here at the Ecologic Institute and have been for um, quite a few years now. I took a, a stint um, a, a little over a decade ago and worked for the uh, German Emissions Trading Authority for um, uh, for two years, but then uh, uh, came back to Ecologic, and that's also at that moment when I sort of pivoted into into uh, carbon pricing. Um, and that's been kind of the main topic of my work for the last, um, I would say, 14, 15 years now at this point. Um, uh, not the only topic of my work, but sort of all the all my work revolves pretty much around the question of how do you s- sort of change economic structures and incentives to to accelerate the, the transition that we need towards cleaner energies and towards uh, decarbonization. Um, so it's, it's trying to think of economic approaches as a tool for uh, transforming the economy and and how that works. Uh, now a big chunk of the work indeed does revolve around carbon pricing in its various shapes and guises, so very much around um, the idea of emissions trading, um, the, the European emissions trading system, but also uh, I've been involved in, in sort of advising on other uh, cap and trade systems in, in other countries. Um, but then we also sort of uh, look at uh, taxation and at removal of environmentally harmful, harmful subsidies. However, that's sort of a lesser, uh, takes, takes less uh, prominence in our work. Um, and in the area of, of um, uh, carbon pricing, one of the things I've been doing and particularly enjoy doing as well is, is uh, in the area of, uh, of capacity building for carbon pricing. So um, trying to, uh, uh, you know, help and advise um, uh, professionals from other countries how to um, how to set up cap and trade systems, basically in their in their national context. Um, one of the things that we may want to sort of discuss a little bit uh, more deeply uh, um, today is um, I'm also coordinating a European research project, uh, Horizon Europe project called 4i Traction, 
Um, and that is, it's actually not only about carbon pricing, it's much broader than that. Uh, it does look at this, the, well, the broad question is, in, in a sense, what would need to happen if you if you ship, shift gears in EU climate policy, going from incremental um, and optimizing um, types of policy approaches that arguably we've, we've seen happening in Europe in the past. Uh, what happens or needs to happen if you shift gears and sort of go into a more transformative mode where... Uh, just lots more change needs to happen in lots of sectors at the same time under very short time pressure with, with uh, high un uh, degrees of uncertainty. Um, how can we actually achieve that and how can we govern that at the European level? So that's one of the, the research questions that is now uh, keeping me basically uh, uh, busy at this point in time. Uh, excellent. And so would you say then how things have progressed over time was it, it was done much more through an economic incentive like the ETS and then now you're looking at, and maybe the whole space has shifted much more to a policy-led approach. Um, yes, I mean, of course, carbon pricing is also policy-led. It, yeah. It's a type of policy, um, but it comes from a framework, I think, that that is about really sort of um, uh, optimizing and also encouraging incremental improvements. And so one of the questions that we're also looking at in for attraction is to what extent can actually carbon pricing also be a, a transformative tool? Now. Economists would say if the price is high enough, then then uh, it can also, of course, drive transformation. But it will do so in a in a, um, in a in a way that perhaps isn't politically or socially acceptable, because you would need to rely on you would need to accept very high carbon prices to 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 do the the very heavy lifting when it comes to phasing out fossil technologies, etc. So I think at that point the the, the um, political discourse, but also the academic discourse, has sort of come around to accepting that uh, relying. Well, I think the, the, the days when the discussion was, do we have only a carbon price and nothing else? That that discussion, uh, you know, we, we might have had ten years ago. That that's been sort of settled more or less. So I think nobody really advocates for carbon pricing only anymore. Um, but then the discussion is also on whether the carbon price is kind of the the lead or the central, the core instrument in the mix, or whether um, other. Uh, tools are needed to to um, to do the heavy lifting in a in a sense, and what the role of the carbon price is in that uh, in that broader context. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And maybe maybe I can jump to we had some final questions. We bring the final questions up to the beginning here, and maybe that will actually like uh, make everything smoother later on. So yeah, because we have the carbon pricing uh, in place and that has been in place, but now we have the we could say could say this external uh, change in the in in the economics of the energy sector, um, to put it lightly, basically, the Russia's war with Ukraine, which has completely changed the politics and the infrastructure and how it's used in the EU and the supply of natural gas, oil, everything now. And how has that and how do you see that and how are you dealing with it, that the high energy prices compared to where the high energy prices were caused by essentially this mechanism for carbon pricing? but now the high price is caused by other factors. I mean, at the at the outset, of course, the, what we're currently seeing in energy markets is really bad news for carbon pricing in that it it um, uh, just creates a situation where politically it becomes extremely toxic toxic to think about anything that that would add to these further add to these prices. Um, and you could, of course, and the the argument has been made that if if the prices are where they are already anyway. That by itself gives enough of an incentive to to um, to conserve energy and to to um, promote renewables, um, and that at this point in time you don't need the the the, the carbon price as much. 
Um, however, it also, uh, uh, if, if you do then follow this line of argument and sort of um, then either freeze carbon prices or even, even sort of reduce um, um, the, the, these parts of the incentives, um, you're also basically going back to, to this notion of saying, well, okay, you know, climate policy and, and that part of the transformation can wait and we have sort of other worries right now. Politically very understandable, but it also sets us up for, for, for difficulties later along the way. So I think that's kind of the, 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 uh, um, uh, the one of the worrying trends. I mean, if you look at it now, we, we did go into the 2020s as kind of the decade where lots of things would need to happen um, at at very short time, so many things in in uh, in setting up the or changing the energy system, driving towards cleaner energies, driving into sort of fully renewables, promoting energy efficiency, lots of things that were um, uh, that were also neglected, that didn't happen fast enough in the past, but that that would have needed to happen, uh, and that still need to happen. Um, and uh, if now, basically, in the in the current situation, that is pushed to the side. It, basically means you know it's you know we're, we're increasing the scale of the the problem that we'll need to address in the in the later half of the of the 2020s um this is also i think one one reason why um um uh, in in terms of sort of looking at the the response to the to the energy um crisis and what should be done about it i would always sort of draw a strong distinction between things that are temporary in nature and that can be reversed. Um, so, for instance, if it's about um, uh, keeping coal-fired power plants um, open one or two years longer, or if it's about them producing more often than they would otherwise have, um, that's not that's not nice, but um, uh, emission-wise, it, it will create some additional emissions, but these are, at least in the European system, under the, under the ETS cap. Um, and uh, it doesn't basically involve any structural change as such necessarily, and that's why I'm, I'm tend to be would be a bit more relaxed about that. What I see as really um, more problematic is the the question of uh, you know do we see any new investments into new fossil infrastructure um, because that will be there um, and it will create political and economic problems somewhere down the line. So that uh, we were at a point when we were discussing, um, starting to discuss what, what amount of fossil investment do we actually still need or is that, are we at the point where we actually stop investing into, into fossil infrastructure altogether? Um, uh, so that was the discussion sort of two years ago and now that, that uh, is, is, is sidelined and we, we, we are seeing big new investments into, into natural gas import infrastructure. And that's setting us up for for sort of more problems um, uh, uh, in the in the time ahead. So I think that's an important distinction to make between like what is a temporary change uh, and what what basically is a structural change that that uh, is is getting us into the setting us into the into the wrong direction. So when people start talking about yeah, Germany is going to continue using coal, or other countries going to bring back or turning back on their coal-fired power plants, we have to remember they still have to pay for those emissions. Then yeah. Exactly, and it's sort of still part of the of the of the EUTS cap, um, which will decline, um, uh, which is already declining, and which will decline much more so in the in the next years. And so, I I, I would tend to think I'm, I'm, uh, it's it's not it's not nice to see them running more. I would love to see coal emissions going down quicker than they are, um, but uh, that that's not. I wouldn't see that as a as a 
as a major worry uh, right now for the reason that they are capped and you could say this is what the what the uh, UTS um, uh, cap is there for so it's more worrying if you once you start seeing um, discussions whether that cap should be changed or not in the light of the current situation whether we should sort of um, go back on ambition um, that that's kind of more worrying but we're not having uh, we, we do see sort of some some uh, some calls from some European countries as well right now to to you know either pause or or freeze the the uh, UETS price or to sort of uh, pause the system as such. Um, that is a much more dangerous discussion, I would say. Um, um, but uh, otherwise, um, as long as sort of the 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 ETS is there, the coal issue is not that much of a of a concern, uh -huh. I would say. So maybe get, getting back the money is more about uh, taxing the extra profits. Than, than suspending the ETS to lower the price. So, yes, certainly also because that's a much more important lever if you look at the numbers. So the the the, the contribution of the um, uh, of the of the carbon price to the to the current electricity price, for instance. Um, is well, it's not negligible, but but it's it's relatively small in comparison. So mostly, uh, what we're seeing right now is driven by by increase in fossil fuel prices, and only to a much smaller extent by by, uh, by the increasing uh, and relatively high carbon price. And so, um, taking away the um, uh, the extra um, sort of the little extra that comes from the carbon price is not going to do much for in terms of lowering bills, but it would do. Um, create enormous political damage because then it, it basically signals um, uh, that is kind of negotiable and we can we can sort of we can use the carbon price when it fits us when all the conditions are right but otherwise you know if it gets heavy then if it gets tough then then uh, that's going to be discontinued and that way of course you also undermine the credibility of the of the political instrument because you're saying well you know if you if you sort of lobby long and hard enough um, we're going to uh, uh, lower the ambition in that part and that's for, for everybody who wants to invest into clean tech Technologies. That's that's a very bad signal, right? Uh -huh. um, so we've um, we've seen this now. Uh, so the EU ETS uh, that that covers um, um, energy generation in Europe and and also heavy industries. That's still relatively fine, but we have seen this in in some European countries that have, uh, including Germany now. That's that's decided to pause the um, the national sort of carbon price, which was supposed to increase every year by an increments of five euro per ton. Um, and the next step for that has been paused, um, which does very, very little um, in terms of reducing the bills to, to households, um, um, but does a lot in terms of sort of um, creating exactly that political signal of, you know, we'll, we'll go back to carbon pricing when the conditions are right. And, and that's just, as we're going into, into a, a period where this transformation needs to pick up speed and needs to basically also create some noticeable effect uh, on the ground, that's a that's a tricky uh, signal to send. Mm -hmm. yeah. And maybe it's this specific area here. And maybe I think we can get into some of the areas of the four four I track yeah. um, project. But let me just follow. Up. We're essentially in the stage, regardless of the the war and the impact on the energy price, where fossil fuels need to be phased out. And in one mm -hmm. sense, the price would be higher anyways. And now it's beginning to bite. I mean. Mm -hmm. it, Yep. Maybe now it's a bit too extreme. I think most yep. people say it's it's too extreme now, yep. but because it's really damaging the economies. But on the other hand, this pricing is sending the signal to invest in non-fossil fuels and, yep. and to be both energy, have increased energy security at the mm -hmm. same time as becoming much more sustainable yep. and, and self-financed or 
So I, I would say this is actually kind of the, the positive story here, um, and, and there is kind of in, in the in the in the you know in the situation we're living through there is uh, I mean <laughs> there is lots of negatives but there is also some positives, um, and one of the positive sides is that indeed um, uh, it it is become clear that this. Um, uh, you know, there's this notion of the of the energy triangle, the three objectives. It's it's sort of uh, environmental sustainability or you know, clean energy, climate friendly energy. Uh, it's affordability, um, and it is security of supply. And and for a long time, the discourse was always on like you know, um, uh, well, you know, renewables are nice, but they only count sort of into one direction for the environment, environmental sustainability dimension. But they are expensive, and um, for security of supply, will need sort of strong fossil backup, etc. Um, and I think what has become clearer now is that um, the, um, uh, the renewables can can support on all three fronts, and basically also energy efficiency can support us on all three fronts. So the whole sort of clean energy transformation is about obviously about uh, uh, environmental benefits, but it also um, increasingly counts towards lowering energy bills, as we're seeing that fossil. Uh, energy uh, has become extremely expensive. Um, that's also been a boost to the competitiveness of, of clean energies, which were already competing in many uses, uh, many applications beforehand. But even more so now with with the with the um, uh, with exploding uh, gas and oil prices. And um, obviously, there are also domestic um, uh, uh, energies where you don't depend on on uh, on foreign suppliers not not in the same way as you would on an, on a fossil market so i mean we got into sort of longer term visions for importing green hydrogen from other parts of the world then you are of course also creating new import dependencies here but even there these can be imported from many parts of the world so it's not as in the fossil sector where it's it's located in um um in very few world regions and many of them having Governance challenges. So I think for for green hydrogen, the, the outlook is a bit um, is a bit more positive. But that's also just one part of the whole story. So the bigger part of the story is, is these are mostly domestic um, energy sources um, that that Europe can source domestically and that are then less dependent on on imports. So I think this is kind of one of the positives that this has taken hold. Mm -hmm. In some of these areas, uh, maybe we go for um, shipping and uh, airplanes. Let's just go like that. Where where now the cost is higher. Uh, and it doesn't seem to be going down lower, but these are traditional, I, I would say, industries that haven't done too much mm. or have done some, but, but the transition's been quite slow. Do you think that now with these higher oil prices and it doesn't seem like oil prices are going to go down, like there's a bit of a geopolitical battle going on now in, in the oil markets, do you, do you think this is going to prompt these industries to actually not just say, oh, we're going to have biofuels to fly with or something mm. like this, right? Or hydrogen to power our ships, um, but we're going to wait, or because it is still quite expensive to to make this transition. Do you see like these bigger industries that do actually have a big impact on CO two emissions, implementing the technologies to to transition yeah. away from fossil fuels? Let me sort of take a different route at this question. There are certain industries where I think the the um, the, the answers are also becoming clearer this is more i'm thinking more so some of the uh, traditional heavy industries so like if you think of, of steel making for instance where also there uh, um it, it is clear that sort of 
blast furnace steel making is not really the thing of the future and I don't think anybody sort of wants to, to still invest into that technology in Europe. Um, and the question is how do we get the alternatives implemented so it's, it's um, uh, uh, direct reduction using hydrogen and then ideally using green hydrogen um, to make it entirely um, uh, low carbon the, the production process. Um, the tricky thing there is that um, these industries were um, in uh, all across Europe I think at a point when they were sort of making their plans for how to also manage their their own transition into this new uh, into this new technology so they had and still have their plans to invest um, and these um, transition plans have been under stress basically under under the current conditions so, so many of these um, uh, companies are now in a just very much challenged by by the current high energy prices and that causes also dries up their um, uh, the, the profits that they would otherwise had hoped to invest into into making the transition. So I think, um, but there too, the expectation was never that it's it's sort of something that they would do by themselves. The the idea was always okay. There needs to be some some element of public support. There needs to be some element of de-risking to make these investments feasible through things like like carbon contracts for difference. And I think you could then sort of turn it positively and say the, the case for, for um, public support for these kinds of investments has been made even stronger and it's, it's now clear that it's probably not going to happen at the scale needed if it isn't for, for, um, for public support. So that's kind of the um, some of these industries where the solutions are, are ready. Um, I think in um, shipping and aviation, I have to admit, uh, that's sort of stretching the limits of my technological knowledge. <laughs> but I think there, my impression is it's, it's still much more open as to where, what, what technologies will be. And it's also, of course, a matter of um, uh, perhaps more for flying than more for aviation than for, than for shipping. It's the question of sort of what, what future scenario are we building for and are we planning for and and sort of what's the demand for 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 air travel um what what will that be in the future uh in the past we've only sort of seen um projections of ever-growing uh amounts of travel um yeah okay so personal personal responsibility along with government commitments and government assistance for for industry i maybe uh we can bring it to germany for a minute and talk about um because the German government's really assisting industry here. I think it's like 200 billion euros that, that they're promising to help industry. I could be totally wrong on it, but something like this, right? So it's, it's a huge amount. And I was just wondering, it, because Germany, yeah, relied the most, well, we won't say relied the most, but Russian gas was integral to their industrial policy and going forward and going green. And then now, yeah, it just, it's not happening. It's not coming anymore. <laughs> um, blowing up the pipelines, you know, it's an easy way to, to stop the gas. But, but now, they ha how is German industry going to adjust to this? And how is the government perceiving their role in helping German industry to adjust? Yeah. Um, so first, the, the 200 billion that you quoted, this is actually uh, includes private households and industry. Um, and I don't think there's any sort of reliable number yet, at least I haven't seen it, and sort of how exactly the split is going to be. But that's kind of the overall volume of, of relief, basically, that's been announced for, for to accommodate higher, higher gas prices. And, and um, I think also electricity is also part of that. Um, uh, and so going to households into industry, um, to answer your question, 
in terms of how is industry supported i think at the time um it's it's most more about sort of just keeping industry alive so in in um um Uh, there will be some immediate assistance still paid out in the winter, including also to industry. And then as of next year, we're expecting to see a um, a, uh, a cap on uh, a share of the gas consumption. So it's it's basically um, um, the, the, the idea that's been put forward and that applies to households and to industry is to limit the, the gas price for a certain share of their consumption, but not to, in the, not to the entire consumption. And the important distinction there is that At the margin, kind of the last units that that um, uh, that industries, but also that households consume, will see the the whole, the full basically marginal price, and so that you do preserve an incentive to to reduce emissions, uh, reduce uh, gas consumption. Now, um, one thing to be said is that. Um, For industry, we have already seen that they have reduced their gas consumption because they feel, I mean, the, the contracts are uh, designed in such a way that for households, it takes a while until the, the higher wholesale gas price trickles through, basically, arrives at the, the, the individual household level. Um, for industry, they, they feel the pinch much more immediately. And so, therefore, we have seen also quite some um, uh, price increases for industry and also in response some some demand reductions. Um, Uh, demand reduction sounds very nice if it's about sort of increasing efficiency, and that has also happened. Um, but uh, it also involves simply um, shutting down um, uh, uh, production units. Um, that can be, um, as a market-organized process, also can be, um, I guess, sort of okay without wreaking havoc on the industry. Um, so we've seen certain um, um, uh, energy-intensive parts of the production process like ammonia production, where Germany is simply importing a lot um, of ammonia from, from other countries. There is a sort of uh, uh, sufficiently liquid market for that. There is sufficient production capacities in other countries. There's sufficient import capacities. Um, so that has been relatively easier. Um, but uh, it's, it's trickier in, in some other um, production chains where, where basically that also leads to disruptions of the, of the, uh, of the value chains, of the production chains. Um, uh, and so in those instances, I think it's more where the, the assessment or the assistance is sort of targeted at, at you know, keeping industries in business. Um, the one thing that we actually have to say, we, we're, not, we're seeing some of that, but not nearly enough, is kind of more... Um, forward-looking um, assistance to make households and also industry use less gas in the future to help them to sort of change their ways. Now, the question, the problem is this, lots of these things, there's lots of things that can be done, but but they all can't be done overnight. So, um, for instance, um, you know, insulating buildings and shifting from from gas, gas heating to, to heat pumps. Um, the scope of what you can do uh, with you know uh, with little investment in, in short time it's just simply quite limited um, uh, and uh, it's basically what we're seeing, seeing now is kind of the consequence of not doing nearly enough on that for for the last decades and we're seeing also that some European countries that, that sort of more were more active in that space uh, Scandinavian countries for instance now are, are of course less threatened by the gas price increase and feel it less because they have simply taken steps to you know insulate their home batteries electrify heating become less dependent on, on, uh, on, on fossil gas for, for heating. So my next question, basically, uh, up to recently, was electricity more expensive. Mm. And then now the push is actually how to make it cheaper, which mm -hmm. goes back to really this electricity. Uh, when when 1920s, uh, 1930s, 
when it was about electrification because it, it had such a benefit to the mm. economy. Mm. And now, back to that, where lowering the price of electricity is actually a big policy impetus mm -hmm. for politicians, for the economy, for mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. Is that mm -hmm. That's kind of a statement, but is that yeah, how, yeah, do, no, how do you no, follow no. that? And indeed, that, that, that is right, because many of these um, uh, technologies are competing with fossil-based alternatives, right? So if you think in electric cars uh, or also electric trains compared to cars or electric cars compared to combustion engine cars, um, uh, heat pumps compared to gas and oil heating, etc., it's always... One of the dimension is, of course, competition on the, on the basis of, of, uh, of lifetime costs um, of these different technologies. And they are becoming competitive. Uh, well, one, one crucial factor in that uh, is, is the cost of electricity. Um, and so therefore, uh, the quicker we can reduce the cost of electricity, um, the, more, um, uh, the sooner these technologies will, uh, will become available. One interesting question is indeed, uh, is there still, you know, if we move into a, a predominantly renewables-based um, uh, system, um, what point is there still for, for uh, you know, should electricity then be as cheap as possible? Um, there is still an efficiency uh, issue as well, right? So, so when we talk about, okay, electric cars will be part of the solution, but then there's also the question, what types of electric cars are we uh, envisaging there? Um, and uh, th there is an argument for, for making them sort of as light and as efficient as possible because then simply the electricity we have will sort of take us further. Uh -huh. Let us travel more miles. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Um, and so uh, that would be one reason for saying, you know, perhaps don't just make it as cheap as possible because efficiency <laughs> will still be, a, you know, one thing to, to worry about. Um, uh, and that uh, the other thing is that the timing dimension. So electricity will become cheaper. Um, but it will become cheaper certainly also at certain times. And so there will be times still when electricity is really expensive, times of the day or times of the year, uh, when electricity is in much shorter supply and where we need sort of more, more flexibility. So the question is, what kind of solutions can we see that basically use lots of electricity when it's cheap, but then also are, uh, you know, conserve electricity at, at those times when it's, when it's needed? Um, and valuing that flexibility is, uh, it takes us back to this question of sort of market design for electricity markets, uh, which is something that current electricity markets don't, but that we need to basically bake into the system, um, rewarding um, uh, the, uh, the flexibility to be shut on and off in, in terms of consumption. Um, perhaps just one, one thing, um, and, and this is sort of looping back to one of the discussions earlier on, on Fit for 55 and, and sort of pricing, um, uh, um, uh, in, in transport and housing, we talked a little bit about um, this um, notion of electrification as one of the one of the routes forward. I think, generally speaking, um, uh, the um, the goal of sort of designing this policy mix around a carbon price would always have to be, or to answer this question of what alternatives do you provide, or do you allow for 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 consumers to and for investors to change their their behavior. Um, and uh, just having this is, I think, also where the where this sort of the old uh, way of thinking on let's have the carbon price as the central or the the the, the one and only um, uh, the holy grail of of, uh, of climate economics, uh, where that sort of fell short, is that if you don't provide uh, alternatives to households, then having a carbon price is really politically difficult, but also economically not 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 super efficient. So the question is always. Do people have a, uh, do households, but also do companies have a way to, of responding to these higher carbon prices? 
and the more uh, the more we can enable them um, to to respond to higher carbon prices, also the better the system functions. So it, it is sort of if you want the the elasticity, uh, the price elasticity of demand is what economists would call that, and it, in discussion would would tend to be sort of taken as a given. This is how consumers respond to higher prices. But I think the point here is that it's not a given. It's actually something that can also be influenced by policies. And if you if you have policies that that sort of enable people to respond to higher fuel prices um, by, for instance, you know, public transport, cycling infrastructure, uh, um, but also a, a, a wide variety of of different cars on the market with different fuel standards, good information, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, that enables them to take smarter choices to respond to these prices. And that point it becomes sort of politically more acceptable, but also the system is going to deliver more uh, emission reduction. And that's why I think the kind of what the conce conceptual argument is that why carbon pricing in itself won't do the job, but it's also about creating these alternatives and um, providing for alternatives to respond to mm -hmm. higher prices. And, and policies to, to assist homeowners. So not just punish them because they're not changing, but actually giving them some assistance, whether that's even just technical assistance yeah. or financial assistance, to actually move away from fossil fuels. Exactly, exactly, and that's still relatively easier in in in, in transport, where you sort of you do have often enough different options. Of course, there's also settings where um, people are simply, you know, limited in their choices, and and the and the car, the the combustion engine car, is the only one for those solutions. But at the end of the day, this is only that only applies to a very small part of sort of households. Uh, it's it's very big in the in the in the political discussion, but at the end of the day, it 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 doesn't in in terms of total numbers, that's not sort of we wrote about. The really trickier thing is in heating, where just simply for a household, your options are way more limited, and you only really have an an uh, a window of changing uh, sort of every every decade or so, or every two decades, sort of at the point when you move houses or when you do major retrofits, major upgrades, where you have to install a new heating system. Um, so in that way, and after that, you know, when you've taken that decision, then for the next 10, 20 years, you don't really have too many options uh, left. And that's, I think, uh, indeed, where, where um, uh, then public policy, all these support programs, you know, um, uh, support for, for, for heat pumps or also um, announcing phase-out dates for fossil fuel heating systems where these can, can help. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then maybe we should shift a little bit to the 4i track yes. because actually I think it underlines uh, underlies many of the th issues that we've been talking about and the policies yeah. and where things are going. My, so my first question is, and I know it's, there's a lot of creativity coming up with project names, but, <laughs> but what, what does the 4i stand for? Explain yeah. that, and then, then we'll get into what the project's about, I think. Of course, happy to do so. So um, with, with 4i Traction, uh, um, we did set ourselves the challenge of thinking through what, what would transformative climate governance for the EU look like? What would it entail? Um, and then one of the things we, we sort of decided on early on is um, let's try and not do this through a sectoral lens this time. So let's not talk through the energy transition uh, or the electricity transition to the heat transition to the transport to the um, you know buildings and, and uh, food and agriculture transition. I think uh, there's fantastic work happening in all these spaces, um, but we thought, okay, let, let's try and see if we can get a different angle at this. Um, and this is why we ended up with these with this four eyes as uh, kind of cross-cutting challenges and they, they kind of structure and define our work in this, in this project. Um, so it's the innovation challenge. Um, how do we um, uh, get to 
the right low-carbon innovations, but also how do we sort of roll them out at scale? So what are the enabling conditions for new solutions to not only be invented in some lab, but actually to be um, brought to market maturity quickly enough and to be rolled out uh, in the, in the, in the, at the scale and at the pace that's needed. Um, the second one is the, the investment challenge. Um, so um, obviously, uh, the rebuilding our economy to be a clean, uh, um, renewable-based economy is going to involve massive investments in, in um, you know, private homes, in infrastructure, in business, etc. Um, and the question is, sort of how do we um, mobilize the, the funds that are needed for that, but also how do we sort of channel and shift the, the, the funding that currently still goes also into fossil um, uh, uh, value chains? How do we sort of manage that, that shift um, shifting the investment from the from the fossil to the renewable side from the from the uh, from the dirty to the clean energies um and what will that do basically also to the to the uh, to the financial system what what type of new new governance structures are needed in the financial system so that's the the investment eye um the third one is infrastructure and the infrastructure challenge being one that um um well basically you know when we talk about different new innovative solutions that could uh, have a role to play. One crucial question is: uh, Is there going to be an infrastructure to support them? Um, and uh, you know, um, electric vehicles being sort of one one obvious example. If um, you know, you can support electric vehicles all you want, but if you don't have charging infrastructure in place, um, then uh, it will not be a feasible strategy. Or green hydrogen is similar. Um, uh, you know, it's it's an interesting um, application. In, if you talk about sort of decarbonizing certain certain uh, applications, for instance, in industry, um, but the the financial commercial viability of these solutions depends a lot on whether you can actually get the the hydrogen or the green hydrogen to the plant uh, at at reasonable cost, and that is also an infrastructure question. Um, so um, you have the question also of sort of how do you transition infrastructure, right? Right now we have uh, uh, Europe is, is full of fossil-based infrastructure and the question is not all of that will, will be needed anymore. So it's about you know, repurposing, rebuilding, but also dismantling some of that infrastructure. Um, how do you sort of organize that process? And it's about um, overlapping infrastructures. Um, so... We talked about um, uh, you know electrification will have a role to play, and so therefore electricity grids will also have a role to play. Um, but then there may also be instances where different infrastructures are uh, are competing with each other. So just to give you one example, so you know um, the Denmark to the north of Germany has fantastic wind capacities, and they are not far from the point. Uh, or, and scenarios will say eventually well, they will sort of reach this point where they have an overabundance of wind energy um, domestically that they can't sensibly used in, in Denmark. And then the question is, what do they do with that excess electricity? Do they sort of sell it as electricity to, to Germany and to, to the Netherlands and to Poland, to their kind of the southern uh, uh, neighbors in the region? Um, for that to happen, obviously, it would need uh, transmission infrastructure for electricity. But the alternative could also be, okay, perhaps they also want to invest into using that electricity to produce, for instance, green hydrogen, and then instead ship that green hydrogen to um, other parts of Europe or to you know send it through a pipeline. Um, so here we have one question where, where sort of um, infrastructure really determines which political choices or political choices determine what infrastructure we need. 
um, but also a coordination problem because that's sort of something that it's not only sort of in uh, it's not only a Danish decision. It's it's basically a decision that eventually, of course, Denmark and Germany and the Netherlands should agree on some some kind of outcome for themselves. Um, so that's the infrastructure dimension, and the last one is the the integration. Uh, the fourth I is about integration, and this is uh, sort of goes back to. Um, uh, indeed also these these very questions of how do you align um decision making happening in different sectors so with the with the transformation we are seeing a change that is faster than um we've seen in the past that is more profound and sort of deeper than it's been in the past but it's also broader because it's happening in different sectors at the same time so we're seeing basically a, an energy transition a mobility transition a an industrial transformation um uh, all these things happening in parallel um, and needing to be coordinated in some degree. Infrastructure was kind of an obvious example, but there's also other other sort of ways of, of keeping that interlinked. And the question is, how do you make for that kind of integrated governance where in the past policy approaches were mostly about, you know, what's what's the strategy in sector A, what's the strategy in sector B? So how do we align that? That's kind of what we, what we set out for integration. And as you might have already noticed, then these different eyes are perhaps interesting challenges to look at but then one of the, the at the meta level they are also interrelated so the infrastructure challenge is in its own way also an investment question of you know who who pays for that infrastructure is it better public uh, public funded or is it privately funded who is taken on what share with the risk and how do you sort of compensate for for stranded assets and infrastructure uh, is very much also financial and investment question um, innovation is fine, but doesn't happen without infrastructure. So the innovation and the infrastructure dimension also, of course, are interrelated. And uh, obviously, integration is sort of a challenge that cuts across all these. So in themselves, they are also um, uh, they, they, they are also sort of interrelated challenges. Now that's basically the logic of these four eyes, um, and uh, this is kind of the 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 uh, <laughs> at the at the abstract level kind of the experiment we're, we're doing with this with this research project to see if it can give us new new insights to um thinking about european climate policies um uh it is a bit of sort of explaining what the project is all about what it's doing um it did set out with a with sort of first a stock taking and backward looking components so right now uh we are conducting Numerous case studies uh, at the European level for examples where countries have taken steps towards transformative uh, policies. Um, uh, these are being conducted by, by different partners all across Europe. We have also looked at sort of some international experiences uh, to see where we could find examples of, of uh, transformation happening. Um, and uh, we are we've just sort of. Uh, launched basically the first the second half of the project which then will be sort of more forward looking which is more about exploring okay so given all this how could and how should eu climate policy evolve um basically with a with a sort of horizon after 2030 so if you want it's about we talked about fit for 55 already mm. fit for 55 is kind of the current uh, uh, uh the hottest game in town in brussels the the, yeah. the, the current proposal on the table for uh um, changes to the setup of EU climate policy in the in the next years to take effect yeah. basically until 2030. We're taking basically we're asking the question: Okay, what 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 comes after that package? What's kind of the the uh, the next one that that might follow it? Good. And then with this, uh, actually, let's just recap the four I's. So it's innovation, infrastructure, and investment. Investment. 
And integration. Yes. And integration. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, we have our four eyes. And then uh, with this, you're, you're working with stakeholders as mm -hmm. well. I mean, you mm -hmm. have your, your consortium partners, which mm -hmm. are universities mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. think tanks yep. in this. Yep. And then you, you also have some part like businesses that you're working with. And, and can you name those? Or who, who are those that I guess it is? Um, it's actually sort of, we do have a few industry partners as well, but it's more because the, the, the project in itself is sort of, is more policy focused. And so our main stakeholders tend to be sort of in the policy realm. Um, uh, so um, we do have, um, uh, you know, at the European level, at the, the sort of European Commission, DG Climate and, and DG Energy, uh, involved in our activities and, and including sort of as um, advisory board members, but also in, in sort of our stakeholder engagement uh, activities. We just um, two weeks ago implemented a, uh, a policy lab process, uh, which was about uh, you know, going through Brussels and then um, in a sort of co-creative fashion, inviting stakeholders um, from political institutions, from the commission, but also from uh, uh, industry associations, from civil society, from academia, so kind of the, the Brussels climate policy bubble, if you want, yes. uh, inviting them to, to sort of spend a day with us on, on sort of mapping out what could be possible policy avenues for, for EU climate policy going forward. Um, uh, and that was exactly also in the spirit of, okay, well, let's, let's not worry about sort of fit for 55. Let's consider that as, as basically as a given. And let's think about how, um, what, what could the next step after that look like? I mean, I don't want to like re reveal your findings <laughs> or anything, but how, because since we talked about a lot about the current crisis, energy crisis, yeah. and you know, this completely has changed how the policy discussion evolves mm. now. You know, one could imagine that the prices would be so high that this transition, energy transition, would be accelerated so, mm. so quickly mm. because the economics are, are certainly there like today, the past couple of months. And how, how, how was it for you, the, maybe just the conversation in this workshop or however you want to describe the forum that you had, uh, how, how was the conversation now compared to maybe pre-pre-crisis? Mm. Were there some key issues that came up or kind of how, how has the thinking changed? I think on the on the positive side, one could say that um, um, at least it hasn't been derailed, um, which also I think is a conceivable scenario that that uh, under the the impression of the current energy prices that you would have had much stronger voice. I mean, you do have these calls for like you know let let's sort of rethink our climate ambition, and now is not the time to sort of uh, uh, to worry about that. I, you have few people sort of openly dismissing that but but of course i mean you 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 know uh, transforming to climate neutrality was never uncontested and those people that didn't agree with the idea of course would, would now use the the uh, these arguments to, to push against that but um i think interestingly at the um uh, um and of course we were we were sort of assembling um more the climate professionals in brussels but there um there's been little um um uh, or we haven't seen at the european level sort of a strong pushback against the 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 sort of the decarbonization which i think also has to do with the fact that it's become obvious that this is the direction of travel also for instance for for industry and private business right so um they are ready to to uh, or they are embracing the, the the challenge and sort of rising up to it and the question is is not I mean, there's not really any plausible alternative scenario to keep investing into high fossil assets, um, 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 I think that, that, that ship has sailed pretty much. Yeah. Um, so 
I think that on a positive note, but then in other ways, of course, the discussion has become much, much more nuanced. So one thing that, for instance, um, uh, is, is really sort of front and center in all discussions is the question of social compensation, um, social acceptance of these policy measures. And that's also why, why sort of carbon pricing has a very difficult stand uh, right now, um, because it is uh, working through by changing prices at this current time when prices are already up. Uh, uh, at the at the current levels is a is a very difficult proposition. But but this, wait, I want to interrupt. Yeah, I want to sure. because now it's so interesting because um, it's it's about you, know, you think about homeowners or households. We'll phrase mm -hmm. it like that: households, and that before, yeah, we should kind of help them out. We should help mm -hmm. them on this trajectory. Mm -hmm. But it was more like to go green, to become mm -hmm. more sustainable, yep. to reduce their energy yep. use. But now it's imperative because it's about reducing their energy bills, their yep. energy cost, actually, yep. Yep. and helping them. And do, do you, how, how does this, how will this play out, I guess, in the policy realm? Yeah. Um, so I think that the, the challenge is recognized. It's more about the question of how do you organize in the most efficient way this process? How do you sort of get acceptance, support to those um, uh, people that, uh, to those households that really need it in the, in the most targeted way? Um, one thing that I think is not universally applied, but is has sunken in, and something that we would also also call for is when you do that, do it in such a way that you don't undermine the incentives you're trying to provide. Right. So so keep the the incentive intact to to reduce emissions and to reduce energy consumption while also assisting households. And that sounds like a um, uh, uh, like contradiction in terms, but essentially it's about what you want to do is you want to reduce the cost of energy but you don't want to reduce the price of energy so you want to mm -hmm. reduce the household bill so what what households end up paying in the end but um you want to keep the, the the price per unit intact and one way of doing that is simply sort of returning some of the money and on a lump sum basis per household that's kind of the, the ideal situation tricky to implement in practice because you need the infrastructure to do that but that's of course the ideal solution if you can basically say every household or per capita you get a certain amount paid back but then you also have to accept the fact that the, the price of the unit of fuel you're consuming goes up. Um, uh, so that's kind of the ideal solution. Um, there's also other, other um, uh, channels. Um, uh, so one thing that I, going back to the discussion earlier about providing alternatives, is anything that, that can help to reduce vulnerability um, makes a lot of sense. And here one, one challenge is how to set up programs in such a way that they actually benefit the most vulnerable households first. Mm -hmm. um, so i.e. those that live in currently in very poorly insulated homes or also that, that are um, economically most disadvantaged. Um, and the tricky thing here is that in the past, I think um, uh, when, when we think about sort of retrofits and, and, and uh, heating um, exchange programs, typically these would be set up as sort of government programs where you can apply for a certain uh, a certain grant uh, and then start investing and that's all nice and well if you have sort of if you're a homeowner and you have money left over to invest and you know how to sort of where to go for the the um, uh, to apply for these funds then that's all fine but if you're a tenant and you perhaps don't speak the language well or you you don't have any any money left over these things don't help you so that the challenge here is really finding solutions that also work um for those households that really sort of need the assistance most, um, if that's working with homeowners associations or sort of building um, uh, associations uh, is one step forward, but also finding ways of sort of um, uh, 
translating the messages in in such a way that they arrive in in in, in different um, targeted households and sort of finding different ways of of getting that out across not setting up a website somewhere but really sort of uh, yeah. having having locally trained people from the neighbors yeah. that can go out and, and provide advice at a at a sort of very much peer-to-peer -peer level um these are also things to think about it's it it is certainly not an easy task to address um but uh it's 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 a necessary one to loop back i think to the policy discussion um the place where where some of these elements are are sort of based in the the european discussion uh this fit for 55 is the notion of the um um the social climate fund which is one one element of this mm -hmm. 55 which basically also captures this notion of um okay let's let's take part of the revenue from carbon pricing and return that to uh, to those households most in need to to um uh, assist them directly through uh, monetary compensation or also to provide um um uh, assistance in reducing emissions mm -hmm. and uh you you're going to develop some scenarios for this uh, for the project uh, so in four oh, attractions, uh, that's actually one of the one of the downsides. If you want for for these kinds of research projects, we when we set up the the uh, the project was basically designed in two thousand and nineteen twenty around that time. Um, um, and at the time, the the I mean, the social question was already on the rising on the agenda, but it didn't make its way into the into the basically the the, the terms of reference for this project. Um, and this is why we are having a little bit of a blind spot. We, we're trying, trying to sort of weave in the social dimension wherever we can. Um, but this is why basically now it wouldn't be a four-eye attraction project if we designed it now. It would be at least a five-eye attraction. <laughs> okay. the, 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 fifth, the first one would be about <laughs> inclusiveness or about, about uh, oh, you know, yeah. equity aspects. Um, so now we have to basically see how we can weave the question into, into, into our work. Uh, we are addressing it in, in, in other projects, obviously. And the, it is, uh, I think, the central question in lots of the policy debates um perhaps just one other thing to to uh, to bring up um going back to this question of sort of what how has the how has the discussion changed and what um what is the current outlook in the yeah. uh, in the in the current period one thing that is somewhat worrying is the is the sort of the investment dimension here particularly the the financial um uh, dimension the fact that we are uh, moving back into a, a macroeconomic environment with rising interest rates, we actually were in a very nice space in Europe. We had sort of zero or negative interest yeah. rates in many European countries for for public debt um, for quite some time, um, and um, this is, I think, one of the really big missed opportunities that we didn't use that a lot more aggressively to fund investments into into low carbon infrastructure which we know we will be needing anyway and we know it will only you know it, it, it will require some amount some degree of public uh, uh, support um, and we are now moving into a world where we see sort of rising interest rates now all of these investments we're talking about pretty much all of these investments we're talking about for for cleaner technologies involve an element of upfront cost and reduced cost later right yes. so the initial uh -huh. investment is going to be higher that's the case for renewables that's the case for many energy efficiency you, you pay now and then you have a benefit later yeah. in terms of um uh, reduced energy bills um but there, of course, interest rate is sort of the one crucial determinant uh, to determine, you know, how feasible that investment is. And 
of course with a with a six or seven percent interest rate um, not saying we will get it but you know if, if we go into that that makes a whole lot of these investments less attractive than with a with a zero or one percent interest rate yes and so this is i think one one um one of the challenge we haven't really sort of thought that entirely through to the to the end but uh, we would see that as a uh, a, a big challenge in the investment uh, space to how to accommodate for that okay okay especially um in eastern europe the interest rates even higher there yeah so okay we won't talk about hungary where it's 13 <laughs> percent at least yeah. but uh but by the other countries as well yeah so yeah. okay yeah. And um, for the, uh, I just want to begin maybe wrapping up here then. Mm -hmm. For the four, four I, I introduced it as four I track, but it's for I traction uh, project. Is um, uh, what what do you what what is the well? There's always different deliverables at the end, mm. but but what what's kind of the overall emphasis that should come out at the end of it? Yeah. Um, so um, one of the four outputs. I mean, obviously, it's sort of. Yeah, <laughs> I should do justice to all the partners doing great work in all these different work packages. <laughs> and as these projects are set up, there's tons of work packages, tasks, and great research being produced in in, in different corners of the uh, of the project. Um, uh, we now have basically the, the the sort of one thing that's just hot off the press is kind of the insights from the international case studies. The the national case studies are coming up, and will also provide interesting study cases for for how transformation can work. But um, uh, one thing that I'm really very much looking forward to, I, I mentioned this sort of this policy lab process uh, uh, that has resulted in, in these different policy avenues and we'll apply a bit more scrutiny to those um, going forward to try and get a better understanding of what are the risks and benefits of following a certain paradigm of policy. So if you apply sort of more the market-based, if you follow the market-based mm -hmm. route and work through prices and, 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 and market-based elements, what are the benefits and risks of that and sort of what, how compatible how politically feasible is that versus some of the other alternatives that we that we sketched there um so getting to a more nuanced understanding of these um well, paradigmatic yes, <laughs> types of, uh -huh. of, of, of uh, instrument combinations um and um when we've done a bit more scrutiny of that then sort of one of the uh, concluding pieces of work will be to to try and um, bring that back to Okay, what does it mean for EU climate governance and what is a sort of transformation-ready climate governance? And that's, in a way, kind of then will be the task of answering the big question that we've set ourselves with this project based on the insights that were, that were gathered, um, uh, trying to come up with, with ideas for a, uh, an EU climate governance. Uh, governance as in sort of the, the total uh, collection of all these different climate policies, but also the systems, how decisions are made in Europe, uh, what, what uh, decisions are um where do we need uh, more uh, where, where, where do we see benefit in more centralization greater centralization but also perhaps uh, in decentralization so which things are better left to the to the to the member state level um what role for for sort of uh, uh um uh, you know watchdog mechanisms like like uh climate councils or, or sort of climate laws to to sort mm -hmm. of give it more structure for this whole, whole process so in terms of also understanding where where do we need to be rigid in making making um, um, drawing sort of solid lines as to this is direction of travel, but also where do you have to allow for flexibility? Um, uh, and, and obviously, you always need a bit of both. But then the question is, where do you find the sweet spot between allowing sufficient flexibility to account for surprises, but also giving enough rigidity so that, um, that the direction of travel is clear for for all, you know, private households, investors, um, policymakers, etc. Mm -hmm. And then. Um, uh 
Okay, it's almost the last question. Yeah, but, okay. but, but just, just uh, one, because, one, yeah. if I might, might just sort of one, one thing, uh, I don't want to sort of get lost here, um, <laughs> is this question of how do you make this also work in uh, accounting for political turbulences that we are seeing, we will continue to see in, in Europe. So I think it's this is one, one thing, <laughs> just important to stress that. Uh, it would be easy enough to think about all this in terms of assuming we have, you know, blue sky thinking, we have fantastic political institutions and they would certainly be able to come up with, with great policies and implement them. But the world is not like that. So we are constrained uh, uh, or there, there is sort of an effective constraint as to sort of how, how rational policy processes are. Um, and we we will be expecting to see further shocks and developments sort of EU governments uh, stirred up. Um, um, we, we see positive and negative outcomes, right? So right now we, we, we do see um, uh, the, the forces sort of also drawing on Europe and, and different anti-European sentiment growing yes. in, in parts of Europe. But we also see basically that, that European countries have come together faced with, a, with an external threat. And, and I think that's sort of underlined the value of cooperation and the need for cooperation so there's kind of always sort of positive and negative but this is also one thing that that uh, in in when when thinking about european climate governance of course we want to sort of come up with with um analysis and results and recommendations that also take that these very real life constraints into account yeah actually that was that was part of my question was okay. was yeah yeah <laughs> taking into account the, the current crisis and how things have developed pol politically uh how how yeah these these scenarios because uh because it is available on on your on the project website these national the assessment of the national mm -hmm. um policies that mm -hmm. you have and uh my my question was was the team or those that the researchers that that reviewed those were they able to take into account the, the current political or political and economic mm -hmm. environment or were they assessing this under like pre-war conditions basically yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, what we've done, what we've published so far, is mostly really just an assessment of what would need to happen, and it's not kind of a, in that way, not a, not a, uh, not assessment of actual policies being implemented, but more like so. If you take 1.5 degrees serious, uh, and if you take sort of energy transformation serious, what does it tell us about the European climate goals? Uh, finding uh, this is sort of the, the work that Climate Analytics, the colleagues have done there finding that we actually uh, even fit for 55, even the 55% reduction target by the end of the decade, which EU considers ambitious, is not ambitious enough if we take 1.5 degree uh, uh, target serious. Um, it also sort of breaks down, I think, quite nicely what that would entail into sort of energy um, supply changes uh, across uh, European countries. So the, the um, uh, phase out of fossil, uh, fossil fuels. This is, I think, one thing where, where indeed uh, the, the, the analysis has been overtaken by reality because the, the modeling still assumed, uh, you know, first get out of coal and then a few years later get out of gas. Um, and that might well, um, in, in the current situation, be sort of reversed order that we're seeing, you know, gas being prioritized <laughs> and coal staying on for somewhat longer. Um, but in essence, I think that's, um, and that has, of course, profound implications for, for sort of how the immediate policies are designed, but the, the, it doesn't change the overall picture in the sense of, okay, we need to get out of both of these uh, and we need to get into renewables very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. Okay, the very last question, because you brought it up, but for me, it's almost the most interesting one, but I, I think we have to save it for another day, is 
this joint action by the EU as a whole, mm -hmm. uh, because now we're in this crisis mm. situation, and you said it, it's impressive how the countries have come together. Mm. I was wondering, could you expand on that more? I'm like, uh, because there's always been so much tension in, mm. in creating these policies and the policy frameworks within the EU mm. to make this energy transition mm. with 2030 goals, 2050 goals. And now, yeah, there's, there's a greater, with the limitation of gas imports, there, there's a, this is for you. Let me, let me phrase this as a question. Yeah. For you, is that do you perceive that there is a greater European unity in the area of energy policy? Um, there are signs there again, sort of positive and negative. But I think overall, uh, more more positive than negative. I, when when I was referring to sort of the greater sense of unity, I think it's it's just it, it, the, the, in the in the last half year we've seen the value of having. Um, a, a strong and unified Europe, and of also having having sort of a, a inner European solidarity. So I think if if um, uh, that's not going to take care of sort of secession ideas uh, like Brexit forever and ever, but for the time being, I think it's sort of it sends a strong signal that there is a value to be sort of part of this community of of, of countries, and also to to sort of assist and support each other in terms of um, showing this kind of solidarity. Um, that isn't um it, it it certainly is far from perfect as well there's many instances where we would have hoped for more um uh, more coordination so i think certainly also in, in 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 terms of crisis we are seeing a lot of this uh thinking of their own uh, electorate and their own country their own system first and and not enough uh, coordination also on energy uh, on energy issues um We've seen that discussion popping up again now, in, also in the context of relief measures, where it's about you know mm -hmm. sort of if, if Germany decides to to effectively subsidize its gas, what does it mean for the internal gas market and for for sort of costs going up? Um, uh, then what you know what does it do to markets in other European countries? Um, we haven't uh, we had sort of I think important interesting ideas um, about uh, common uh, purchasing of gas by European countries. So rather than because now, of course, Europe is in a or European countries are in a tough space. They need to, you know, essentially find new suppliers on short notice to 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 get uh, natural gas from. And the way that it's worked out was mostly that okay, then you know, on Monday, um, the the German Minister of Economics flies to Dubai or flies to the Gulf countries and and sort of makes a deal. And then on Wednesday is the French minister and the Spanish minister arrives on Friday or something like this. And then obviously um, that way you 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 are sort of are in a weaker negotiating position because you're sort of divided. And so mm -hmm. the the idea should there be a common European purchasing for for gas to to uh, use the combined market power that Europe can have that was discussed hasn't really materialized and is still one of the in that space I think one of the areas where where greater coordination would be uh, would be certainly desirable. I would also see this. We talked about infrastructure development. I think there um, too, we we are seeing more of that happening. So, um, but uh, not not nearly enough in terms of then also aligning infrastructure. But for the time being, I mean, things like, for instance, the the um, um, what's working relatively well is 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 also uh, agreement on using each other's infrastructure for gas supply now, right? So so um, saying this also from a German perspective that Germany is is. Um, Chose not to invest uh, as much as other European countries into into uh, LNG import capacities. Now is reliant on LNG capacities in in neighboring countries, but that is working um, relatively well. 
Uh, another area of sort of solidarity is if you want also you could say the the the, the French nuclear situation where you know uh, French. Uh, so part of what's driving the problem in the electricity markets is not only Russia but it's also the fact that more than half the French nuclear fleet is is down is not producing, and that needs to be made up with with increased production in in European neighbor countries. Um, uh, that is creating frictions and problems, but it's not resulting in massive political divisions um, over that. So I think there's many elements where it's sort of that uh, that cooperation is actually happening and is happening in a not always perfect way, but in a in a robust way, I would say. Yeah, a robust way. All right, Benjamin, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for setting this at the time and thank you for talking about everything from ETS <laughs> to, yeah, this energy transition and the 4i traction project as well. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure and um, indeed hope to continue the discussion. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. And remember, each episode is equivalent to consuming 10 journal articles, one book, and 500 charts on how to implement the energy transition. And you get it all in less, usually, than 60 minutes for each podcast. Guaranteed. I can actually say no other podcast makes this guarantee. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make the transition. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are most active, on the My Energy 2050 page or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.